Hello, and welcome back to the HSPAN podcast, your go-to podcast for longevity policy discussions. I'm your host, Dylan Livingston. In this episode, I had the pleasure of talking with Dr. Matt Caberline, Chief Science Officer at Optispan Ventures and Professor of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology at the University of Washington School of Medicine. I have been looking forward to this discussion for quite a while now. His contributions to the longevity and aging movement have been nothing short of remarkable. With over 250 published papers, his work has been tantamount towards the advancement of longevity science understanding. Personally, I wanted to know more about his work with dogs. When talking about man's best friend, it only makes sense for us to want them to enjoy the same long and healthy lives as their less furry counterparts, us. Here's my discussion with Matt Caberline. All right. Thank you for joining us, A4LI listeners, to, to another uh, installation for another installation of A4LI's podcast series. Um, my guest today is Matt Caberline, professor of pathology at University of Washington, uh, among many other things. Uh, Matt, would you like to uh, say hi and introduce yourself briefly? Sure. Hey, everyone. Uh, Matt Caberline. I, as Dylan said, I'm a professor of laboratory medicine pathology at the University of Washington. Um, I've been studying the biology of aging for, geez, going on 20, 25 years now, almost. Um, and, uh, you know, it's become something that I'm super passionate about. And I'm super excited about where the field's at and where we're going. Awesome. Awesome. Me too. And I'm glad that you're excited because that, you know, when, when, when the, uh, when the smart people are excited, that means there's something to actually be excited about. So that's, that's great. So, uh, Matt, you know, I usually start off these podcasts by asking, uh, you know, our guests, uh, you know, uh, 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 uh to, to go back in time and, and, and kind of tell us what inspired you, you know, 25, 30, 40 years ago, whenever, <laughs> whenever it was for you, uh, you know, what, but what inspired you to kind of do what you're doing? And, you know, uh, you obviously want to make a big impact on the world, right? What, when did you come to that realization that you wanted to, you know, change the world in, 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 in a big way? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think I, I think I always felt that way. Um, the path to, you know, actually, hopefully having a having a, a positive impact on the world, I think took a little bit longer um, in my own mind to clarify. Um, you know, I, I went to graduate school. So this was 1997 when I started graduate school, um, not thinking at all about the biology of aging and the field that I ended up, you know, really focusing my career on at that time. I was really you know, I was trained in mathematics and biochemistry, and I thought I would do something like protein structure and design or x-ray crystallography. But during my first year at MIT and the biology program there, I heard a talk by Lenny Garenti, who I ended up doing my thesis research with, where he talked about how his lab had, you know, started to study aging using molecular biology and, and biochemistry and genetics. Mm -hmm. And something about that talk just resonated with me. And, you know, I, I was immediately um, struck by the complexity of the problem. And I think the also struck by the potential impl implications for 
uh, human health and well-being if we were eventually successful at tackling this problem of trying to have a real impact on the the biology of aging and you know as i learned more about the field um that uh sort of initial response has only been reinforced and and i'm absolutely a believer that the um the ability to modulate the biological mechanisms of aging uh has the potential to 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 have a much larger impact on human health and well-being than just about any other area, certainly of biomedical research um, that we are studying today or that we have studied in the past. The the wider recognition of uh, biology of aging as a scientific discipline is relatively new. You know, when I went to graduate school, when I started graduate school, it was a pretty small, I mean, it's still a relatively small community compared to like cancer biology, but it was a really small community then. And so one of the things that I've seen, you know, just in the, the time that I've been working in the field is many more young people are coming into the field knowing that's what they want to work on, right? Because right. they've heard about the science of aging. And, you know, regardless of how you feel like uh, about some of the more extreme personalities in the field, like Aubrey de Grey, you know, Aubrey has brought a lot of people into the field because that's how they first get exposed to this idea Absolutely. of the science of aging. I mean, and so that, I think it's- person who brought me into the field, right? Yeah. yeah. So I think I view that, Again, I disagree with Aubrey and in, in uh, about some of the some of the things that he sure. that he sure. says and timelines, but it's been really, I think, a positive thing. And I have I feel very good about the fact that the field has gotten to the point where young people are coming in recognizing the importance of this problem, and they are extremely motivated from sometimes from the time they graduate high school um, mm-hmm. to to make an impact. And I think that's mm-hmm. fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not for nothing. I, we we just brought on a part time, uh, you know, IT person, uh, and he was a a, a uh, was is a nineteen year old kid who you know just graduated high school and said, "Hey, I, I want to get involved with the longevity field." You know, I have these IT skills. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I mean, we we're, we're bringing him on because you know, with the, you know, at this point also, it's still it's still small enough field where there's there's really is room for everybody at this point. There are. You know, they're, 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 you know, I, what I do in my spare time, you know, when I'm not doing this political stuff is, you know, try to bring new players into the field. Right. So I think there's still a lot of room to, to grow. Right. But, you know, uh, definitely, you know, there are a lot of, you know, I mean, I, 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 you, you and I have been at similar conferences in the past few months, you know, I see a lot of young faces there, you know, a lot of young, excited academics uh, getting involved. So yeah, it's, 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 it's a good time to be in longevity biotech, you know, it's, it's definitely on the upswing and, uh, you know, I, 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 I don't see how anybody, you know, if, if you're exposed to age, you know, the aging research field, how anybody could want to go back to anything like cancer or <laughs> Alzheimer's research, you know, cause it's just the, the impact of aging research is just so obviously clear, right. It's just so obviously, you know, bigger than one of these siloed diseases that, 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 that these, you know, biomedicine has been, uh, targeting, um, so I think, so- I think you're right. Um, I, the, the one thing I would say is I think, you know, historically part of the reason why people sometimes did go, if you want to say back, uh, maybe shifted their research programs towards, you know, cancer or heart disease, even if they understood the biology of aging or that's where they came from was because of funding, right? right. That's what right. you had to do to get your research program funded. Exactly. One of the things that makes me extremely optimistic about the future of geroscience or, or aging biology is I think that's going to change. I think that there are now 
sufficient resources being mobilized for this problem. And it's the first mm -hmm. time in human history that's been the case that the, the, the people who are in the field now aren't going to be forced to make that choice, that there right. will be resources to study the biology of aging. Um, uh, and in fact, I think the field will grow rapidly over the next five to 10 years because of that influx of resources coming into the field, both on the basic research side and in the, the longevity biotech space. Right. Absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the, the Alpos lab announcement, right. That's a huge deal. The, the evolution, you know, the evolution yeah. foundation, like there, there are funds for, you know, uh, you know, there are funds available, right. For, for this kind of stuff. Now you don't yeah, need to and, kind of and, sugarcoat and just, it. Just to put it in a, in, 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 you know, in, in perspective, if evolution actually deploys the funds that they have committed, that's going to be about three times the United States federal budget for biology right. of aging research, right? right? So, right. so this is now, I mean, this is a real game changer. So I think we're all, you know, waiting to see, but very, very optimistic that, uh, that, that things are going to change for the better in terms of the ability to actually start to do some of the initiatives that we've all been wanting to do for a while. Well, not for nothing, Matt, you know, I, I didn't plan on talking about this, but you know, not for nothing. This is, well, I didn't, I didn't plan on talking about this yet, but you know, I guess we'll just get into it. Not for nothing. When we go to these A4LI, when we go to these uh, po uh, political offices, you know, one of the things we highlight is the Evolution Foundation and how the uh, Saudi government is committing, uh, you know, like you said, three times more than we are to this issue. Yeah. And what are they, uh, you know, I mean, GDP wise, I, I could look it up right now, but I think they're probably like a, a, a 30th of the size of us, maybe, you know, yeah. a 50th. Like, I don't know what yeah. the number is, but, but, you know, the, the, the ratio is definitely off. If, you know, if we wanted to invest in, you know, <laughs> if we, we, we really should, you know, if, if the Saudis uh, government is, is investing a, a billion dollars, the U.S. government should be investing like forty billion dollars, like thirty yeah. billion dollars. You know, I, mean, I, if, if we're I obviously I I agree. I think you know there and there are lots of there are lots of reasons which we don't have time to get into why that hasn't happened yet and why it's still a little bit of an uphill battle at the U.S. Sure. you know federal funding uh, level. Um, but I I think it, you know one thing I would say in general is so so Hevolution, you know as you know but but just for your your audience is a nonprofit foundation most of the money comes from the Saudi government regardless of how you feel about the Saudi government that's just a fact we're not going to get into that aspect of it but one thing they are doing or at least they have um said they are going to do is distribute that money worldwide so it's not mm -hmm. as if all of that research is being put into infrastructure within within their own nation, right? right? right and I think right. that's commendable. Again, regardless of how you feel about anything else about, about where the money comes from, I think that's commendable. The other thing that I have noticed is there is absolutely an outsized um, uh, enthusiasm and increase in research funding from governmental sources for mm -hmm. aging biology and geroscience internationally. European countries in particular, Asian countries in particular, are ahead of the United States in recognizing the importance of this problem and acting on it. And you could make that argument in some ways about scientific research funding in general, but I think particularly in this space, we run the risk in the United States of falling behind if we don't get get our game together and actually start to put put some more resources towards this problem. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, that's why we started a for li this year. That's why it's, you know, it's been uh, something, you know, that I've been, you know, I've been, I've been pounding on the doors of every politician's office I can. Right. So it's yeah. uh yeah, it's, it's, it's a definitely an uphill battle, but you know, I think, uh, you know, th there actually has been some positive action in, in, in the direction of, of the field so far. I mean, I think, uh, well, this past appropriations bill was the first time geroscience was mentioned at all. Uh, right. You know, there was there was no there was no funding right uh, mentioned for it. But, you know, I think that's kind of the point of what we're trying to do with, the, you know, with the caucus, which, uh, you know, we're, we're very, very close to getting together. And, you know, we'll, we'll have announced by the end of this year. Um, but, uh, you know, it's 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 you know, that, that's the point of the caucus, right? You know, we're, we're, we're setting up a group of politicians who are actually going to now advocate to the Appropriations Committee to, you know, double, triple, quadruple the budget of the uh, NIA Division of Aging Biology, right? So, um, you know, that, that that's kind of what we're, you know, we're, we're up to. And, you know, I, I think, you know, like you said, there, there there's countries all over the world. It's not just the Saudi Arabian uh, government and, and evolution. It's, it's you know, uh, the the UK with their, uh, you know, UK all party, all, all party, par all party parliamentary group. It's a tongue twister there. Um, <laughs> but, you know, they, they did that, what, in 2019? And they, they have a national lifespan goal and all this stuff. And, you know, that, 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 it, that's commendable as well. And, and, you know, Singapore, I'm thinking of, you know, Japan and all those Asian countries have a have a demographic crisis, right? So they have to focus on this uh, longevity field. So, uh, you know, th there, there's examples all around the world. And, you know, that's why I'm, I'm pretty confident that the U.S. will, you know, in the next year, really kick it into gear right and i think you know examples of countries around the world funding it more will will, will, will you know entice the u.s to make this you know a bit of a competition right you know i, th I think there's nothing wrong with a healthy healthy competition especially Absolutely. in an area like this yeah. right and especially in an area where everybody's going to end up benefiting in the long run yeah so agreed I'm, I'm, well, this is a very this is a, this is a great conversation matt i'm I, I i didn't even get to talk to you about some of the things that you're you're up to so let's talk about what you're up to. Like, uh, you know, specifically, uh, you, you, you came out uh, in, in, in the last year as the chief science officer of OptiSpan, right? Uh, right? So I'd like you to kind of go into detail on what you're doing there. Uh, and then also uh, we'll, we'll discuss what you're doing with the dog aging project, because I find that absolutely fascinating. And I have some anecdotal evidence uh, that rap rapamycin works in dogs. So yeah, uh, first... I, I've got a lot of anecdotal evidence about rapamycin. So it's, it's <laughs> The super uh, interesting molecule and and uh, conversation uh, topic. So uh, so Optispan. I mean, I, I I I'm trying to think about what I can what I can say. So I'm going to have to be a little bit uh, a little bit careful. But so so first of all, I think there's a couple things to to say about that. One is that I am in fact um, transitioning out of academia to the private sector. I have um, taken on this role as chief science officer at Optispan. Um, and we can talk about the reasons for that. Like I'm not anti-academia. I, I, you know, I, 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 I'm very appreciative of my experiences in academia. This was just the right move for me at this, this moment in, in time. Um, but I, and I, but I do also think academia has some real, real problems. And so I think if you want to talk about that, I'm, I'm happy to do that, but Optispan, you know, the, 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 the mission of Optispan, uh, really is, optimal health spans for everyone. That's where the word comes from. And our uh, goal is to bring science-based longevity medicine to as many people as possible. Um, and that's, um, that's, a, that's a big goal. There are lots of challenges that go along with that. And specifically how you, how you get there 
uh, I think is something that we're working on. One of the pieces of OptiSpan is in fact uh, creating the toolkit that will allow providers to practice science-based longevity medicine and bring it to their patients. And, you know, I think a lot of people in uh, in the field and, you know, people who are around the field talk about the possibility that, you know, real advances in geroscience are only going to be for billionaires. Um, and, and I think it's important that that's not the case. I don't think it will be, but I think we need to have organizations that are really starting to think about how we make sure that advances in this area are available to, you know, again, optimally anybody who wants to take advantage of them. Um, that, that sounds naive. Absolutely. And I recognize that that's probably never going to happen, but if you don't shoot for that, you're not going to get anywhere close to it. So that Absolutely. is really our, our mission at, at OptiSpan is to make these advances as widely available as, as possible. Also to recognize that, you know, we are really at the very, very early stages of implementing longevity medicine in a meaningful way for human beings. Most of what's out there is speculative. Actually, I would, right. I would frame that even a little bit more strongly. Everybody. Most of what's out there is speculative to snake oil. And so how do you help people differentiate between what's speculative but probably works or might work or will work for some people and what's just pure garbage. And, mm -hmm. and so that's also part of our mission is to help with that process. And some of that, some of that may be directly to the general public, but we really believe that medical practitioners play a critical role in this transition. And so that's where we're focusing. A lot of our attention is on helping to educate the medical practitioners and giving them the tools that they need to be able to treat their patients using science-based longevity medicine. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think that's kind of the goal of everybody in the field, right? I think that's kind of what makes longevity special. It's, it's, it's a very selfless field. And, you know, I don't think anybody sets out to, you know, make longevity medicine just for billionaires. Right. I think that's, you know, uh, so, you know, I mean, it's it seems like that uh, might be a, a you know a, a feasible future, right? Because you know these seem to be experimental and you know potentially expensive therapeutics, right? But you know, I, I rapamycin and, and and metformin and you know all these you know drugs that are widely available, uh, you know, are are are, are cents on the dollar for 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 a dose, yeah. right? I mean, you know, the that's the exciting part. There 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 are so many uh, therapeutics. Uh, yeah. So, so sorry. So what were you going to say there? I think you're, I think you're absolutely right about that. I mean, both what you said that nobody sets out, well, very few people set out with the goal of making it only for, for the, the, the wealthy and famous, um, and that we have some interventions now. In fact, you could argue the, the sort of, um, best evidenced interventions now that are not particularly expensive or, or only for, right. for wealthy people, but there are a lot of, so there's two things I would say about that. One is even if nobody sets out for these, these discoveries to benefit the wealthy, if nobody actively tries to make sure that that's not what happens, sure. there's a chance that that's what's going to happen. So that's, sure. that's number sure. one that, that I would say. The other is there are many, and I'm not, I'm not, this is not coming from sort of a conspiracy theory perspective, but there are many structural and cultural and regulatory factors that prevent some of these interventions that could be widely 
beneficial for a large number of people from actually ever being implemented. And I would put things like rapamycin in that, that category. Um, uh, and I would even say, you can look at things like, you know, nutrition, right? And, and mm -hmm. so, so why is it that number one, our nutritional guidelines are incorrect, <laughs> I think is a nice way of saying it. The recommendations that many people that, that, that are made to the general public are not in line with what we know is best practice for optimal health span. Right, right. So not only are the recommendations problematic, but the implementation, you can't walk down a block in a major city and not be bombarded with nutritional choices that are going to be detrimental to your health span. And uh, so again, I'm not saying that there's any sort of um, a, a attempt to make it that way, but I think there are these structural challenges that disproportionately seem to affect uh, people in the middle class and lower end of the economic spectrum that make it hard for them to achieve optimal health spans. And sure. so, I, so thinking about that and how do we how do we navigate that? What are some strategies that might be possible to implement? I think is important. Sure. Well, you know, I, I something that I see uh, I find interesting is you know the, this longevity movement is not going to just run run in place, right? You know, the the ag tech movement and the AI movement and the you know all these other different you know futuristic movements are going to be kind of you know picking up in their own way, right? So. Uh, you know, I, I think, you know, I, I, I hope I see a lot of, you know, ads for, uh, you know, cheap nutrition based meals that you can order online. I think that, you know, it, it's going to actually hopefully uh, get easier to be uh, eating healthy, right. For, for people. Right. And I, 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 but I do agree. There are some major structural issues. Uh, you know, I, I feel, you know, uh, uh, I remember as a kid, I was not a fan of Michelle Obama's, uh, nutrition, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, crusade, but, uh, right. <laughs> but now, you know, thinking about it, you know, maybe she was right, uh, you know, so, um, but yeah, so no, I totally agree with you. I mean, and, and, you know, that's, that's the other thing. Longevity is not just, it's not just, you know, taking, you know, drugs to, or, or therapeutics or whatever it may be to live longer. Right. It's also yeah. about exercise and, 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 you know, socializing and, 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 and maintaining, uh, you know, healthy relations, you know, the, the, the longevity yeah. dividend, right. Talks about all the four different factors, environmental, societal, uh, I forget if, uh, medical and uh, economic, I think, uh, or the four, I'm blanking on the other. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but, but, uh, but yeah, you know, I, but, but what I'm, but, but, you know, the point is, you know, the, it's, it's a, this longevity approach can't just be about, you know, it, in 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 in, in a for li's instance, it has to be about the drug development uh, and you know regulatory changes and and yeah. and, 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 and all that. And stuff those are important. No right? Don't get me it. wrong. I think right. these things have to happen in concert in order mm -hmm. to achieve the goals that that, that right. we all want to to achieve. Right. But I think they also all need to happen. And 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 the way I think about it is, you know, I think for most people, there's a little bit of a disconnect between the people who are already in this field. Um, and the people who, and the, then the vast majority of the general public, uh, who don't know much about, about the, the science or, or, or the, the field as a whole. Um, but, but I think it's important to recognize that these sort of next level interventions, you know, the gen, the interventions that, that hopefully will be coming down the pipeline soon. I think it's an open question whether or not those are going to be beneficial if you don't get your sort of basics in order first, right? And what I mean sure. by that is if you've got a, you know, if you're obese and you have diabetes and you're sedentary, 
it's not clear to me that something like rapamycin or metformin, well, metformin is a different thing because it will help you if you have diabetes, right? But right. But, the, the, but the even these sort of first level interventions are going to do anything in that context. And, you know, I don't know where the future is going, but the second generation interventions may be the same way. And so I feel like these things have to we have to talk about these things in parallel. You kind of have to get your house in order probably before you're going to be able to benefit from the the newer interventions that are coming down the pipeline. I, I could be wrong about that, but that's, that's, I think it's at least a possibility that we should be aware of and, uh, and considering sure. as we, as we move forward down this path. Sure. I mean, my, my thought is that, you know, the, the, like something like rapamycin being widely, uh, you know, I mean, maybe, like you said, rapamycin. So let me ask you, why, why, you know, why do you believe that? Actually, I, I want to go back. So, so, so you, so rapamycin wouldn't work on a uh, on a sedentary person who is obese. It wouldn't, you know, uh, w w w you know. I don't know <laughs> that that's the case, right? So again, okay, this is speculation, okay. right? Because okay. we don't actually know that it's going to work for anybody, right? I mean, I think right, again, this is this is where this is where we have to be honest with the state of the science. Like, I I know a lot more about rapamycin than almost anybody else out there. Uh, and I'm pretty convinced that for a significant fraction of the population that they could derive some benefit from, you know, some dosing strategy with, with rapamycin. I, I, mm. I believe that's probably true, but I also, I also believe that, um, if you are at coming from a particularly unhealthy baseline in terms of lifestyle, you're less likely to get the right same benefits. And I don't know whether you would get any benefits. And and maybe one way to think about it is, you know, if you're if your lifestyle is predisposing you to a bunch of different pathologies, some of those may be because you're directly impacting the biology of aging and rapamycin mm -hmm. might be effective there. But mm -hmm. not everything is going to be because you have accelerated you know, what we think of as the biology of aging. Right. It only takes one thing to kill you, right? So, so I, you know, I say this sort of tongue in cheek often, but but it's true, right? If you want to live an optimal sort of longevity uh, uh, lifestyle, you can't die. That's the rule number one. You got to stay alive. <laughs> and so you have to make sure that whatever you're doing, you know, isn't going to kill you. And I worry that, you know, some of these, some some people who have, well, I was going to say really poor lifestyles, but unfortunately this is becoming the sort of typical lifestyle, mm -hmm. at least in the United States. That's not all about accelerating the biology of aging. And, and like I said, it only takes one lethal event to kill you and interventions that target the biology of aging aren't going to help things outside of that biology. And so right. I, again, this is speculation, but I think there's at least a reasonable likelihood that that's the case. And so my feeling is, you know, this, the, 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 the strategy should be get your lifestyle at least somewhat in order first before you start worrying about or in parallel with worrying about things like rapamycin, metformin, right. maybe. Right. Metformin, right. again, is complicated. Supplements. The supplements are, are really a place where I where I don't see... I, I don't understand these people who think that they can take a stack of supplements and it's going to make up for a crappy lifestyle. Like that's just, that, that, that's just silly. It's not. Yeah. Work. Yeah. Well, supplements are supplements. They're supposed to supplement a healthy lifestyle, not, you know, be, you know, a, a, a substitute for a right. healthy lifestyle. Right. But, right. Um, but, you know, I mean, I think there's also, I mean, you know, I, I, I 
you know, I, I mean, I, I, I hope one day that there's a drug effective enough to, you know, kind of help everybody. Right. And I think that's the goal of, I think, you know, a lot of the drug developers, right. I think, you know, we want to make drugs that, you know, I mean, at least for me, you know, cause there are so many people who are doomed already. Right. Or, or who right. are already in, in, in who, who are not even doomed yet, who are 20, 30 years old, who are not health conscious and never will be, and, you know, are going to be, uh, you know, unhealthy people at 40 and 50. Right. And so, yeah. you know, and, and it, you know, it's not necessarily even their fault. It's just how, like you said, structurally the world works. So, um, so, you know, so I can think... I comment on that though? Cause I, I think sure. there's a few things to, uh, to unpack there. I agree with you. I'm, I, I also am, am hopeful that we could have therapies that would offset or counterbalance negative lifestyle factors. And, mm -hmm. and I mean, you could make an argument that we do have some of those, right. Statins mm -hmm. maybe are, are an example for some mm -hmm. people. Um, but I would also say, I think the deck is stacked against really effective therapies that, that can do that for a couple of reasons. I think that there is a systematic problem with the regulatory structure as it exists today, that it is difficult to, um, move forward with a therapy that will improve health outcomes in people who are not diseased, right? So mm -hmm. if you try to do a clinical trial in somebody who does not have a disease, the deck is stacked against you from right. an FDA right. perspective. It's right. just really, really hard because the FDA, and this is my personal view, is skewed way too far towards safety. We want, I mean, obviously safety is important, right? But there needs to be, in my view, some sort of rational evaluation of risk reward. The FDA is skewed so far towards the risk side that it's almost impossible to do to to get a drug developed and approved and through the clinical trial process in people who are not don't have some sort of life threatening illness it's very very difficult and the further you move away from that life threatening illness category the harder it gets so the deck is stacked against any company trying to develop a drug for that indication and that's a real problem for geroscience uh, clinical trials. I mean, this is one of the things that we're we're struggling with right now. Um, and I, and as as an example, I, I use exercise. I think this is a to, to me this really is is clear cut. If you had a pill that gave you all the benefits of exercise, right? Mm -hmm. In in an unhealthy person, they don't have to exercise. They take this pill, they get all the benefits of exercise. But that pill had exactly the same side effect profile as exercise. You wouldn't you wouldn't get past a phase one trial with FDA. You wouldn't. Because the side effect profile is worse than rapamycin, right? I mean, it's terrible. Well, so think about all the side effects associated with exercise. Fatigue and soreness and Yeah. And some people die, right? Some people go out and ride their bus, ride, ride their bike and get hit by a bus. There are that would be considered Fair. a severe adverse event in any clinical trial, right? So <laughs> so 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 there's just no way that I see that you're gonna get. Uh, unless, unless we, unless somebody discovers a miracle pill that has no side effects and gives you all the benefits that you're going to get something like an exercise pill uh, uh, approved. I think it's a, it's, it's just too heavy of a lift given how the, the drug regulatory agency is skewed towards risk avoidance. That's sure. my personal view. Sure. But I mean, you know, that's, um, that's the point of, of us advocates, right? We, uh, yeah. you know, are supposed to be, uh, you know, the ones trying to make change uh, in the regulatory body, the ones who are trying to push for, uh, you know, a more a more reasonable, uh, you know, this is this is actually, and uh, in, in, in I think three out of the four conferences I've been to, this is uh, one of the discussion 
topics. But you know, the the the, the risk reward uh, ratio is completely off, like you said. Yeah, and it's it's been something that's that's I think been discussed by by many people. Uh, Tom and, Bell. And I would add to that, I think it goes beyond the regulatory agencies, you know, at least the federal regulatory agencies. This is true at every level, right? I think even if you have physicians who want to prescribe some of these, you know, let's just use rapamycin again as an example, mm-hmm. you know, who, who want to prescribe rapamycin for their patients, you know, they have to have to deal with the risk that they're taking on by doing that, right? right? So there are licensing boards at the local level, at the state level, who, you know, if they start prescribing something like rapamycin, which is a little bit edgy, right? Um, that they might have to deal with pushback or even reprisals from those boards. Or, you know, let's just say, I mean, cause people, older people get sick, right? And they die. A physician prescribes rapamycin, somebody could still get sick. It's not, it's not going to, it's not, an, it's not an immortality drug, but what if right. that patient then decides to sue the physician, right? Because this is, you know, it's it's a little bit experimental. So, so again, I don't know what the right, I don't know what the right place to come down on this is. I, all I'm saying is pointing out that there are structural challenges to um, to moving forward with those kinds of uh, evaluations of potential interventions that they could have a real positive impact and. Um, and I think it's just something we need to talk about more, right? There isn't a lot of conversation around this, this area of off-label use of medications because they might have longevity or health span benefits. And, you know, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Right. How do we navigate that? I mean, it's happening, right? right. There are more people doing this, right. but we aren't having a lot of real productive conversations about that. And how do we get data from that? And, and how do we you know, how do physicians navigate the risks that go along with doing that? Um, You know, in Washington state, we have a right to try law, which at least Mm -hmm. allows patients to take it into their own hands to some extent and, and allows, gives physicians flexibility um, to, 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 to do things like that, but not every state has that. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's complicated. Mm -hmm. These are, these are really complicated issues. And I, and, and I think, um, it's important that we have more conversations along these lines and, and, and try to see both sides. And, you know, I, I, I probably came off as a little bit too harsh on FDA. Like I don't blame the people at FDA. And again, that's just my opinion on where the, the appropriate risk reward should be. But I do believe that there is a culture of risk avoidance at FDA has grown up and that has skewed things in my view, again, too far to, to one side. But if we don't talk about it, you know, nothing's ever going to change. Absolutely. Well, you know, I think also, you know, it's it's still very early to me. I mean, you've been in this field, obviously, you know, longer than I have by, by a good amount. But, you know, it seems to me that, you know, just looking back at the history, it's it's still very early. And, you know, we're still, we're. I feel like we're not even at the, uh, you know, uh, upswing of the exponential growth uh, chart yet here, you know. Yeah. Um, we're at the hockey stick moment, as, yeah, as my uh, mentor, Dave Sabe likes to stay. Yeah, we're just hitting that, that that I think where we're just hitting that sort of you know shift in trajectory. We're close though. I think we're close. I think we're 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 pretty close. And you know, I, but and 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 you, like you said, I, I don't. I, I personally don't blame FDA because all of this, like you said, most of this, you know, until recently, all of it until recently has been speculative, right? It's all been very speculative. You know, there's been really no human. Uh, uh, you know, or human trials of any you know sort of longevity drugs, right? And then you know, now there are. 
Uh, and you know, it's, it's, it, the, the, the more evidence, the more, you know, companies, the more, you know, pipelines, the more drugs developed, uh, the, yeah. the, the more the FDA is going to have to eventually come to the realization, uh, that, you know, this is, this, that we, you know, there needs to be a shift in, 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 in uh, you know, uh, uh, the, 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 not only the risk reward, uh, ratio, uh, right. But also like just, uh, you know, what the priority of medicine needs to be, right. You know, the aging is very preventative and, you know, I, I, I feel like there's a lot of talk about preventative medicine, like, like the preventative medicine community doesn't talk about aging and the aging community doesn't really talk about preventative medicine as much as they should, but they're one in the same, right. And they should be the kind of the same community. And I, I, they probably are to some extent, maybe I'm not seeing the whole picture, but yeah, I think that, uh, I think you're, I think you're right, but I think that is changing. And uh, yeah, I, 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 again, to just, I think echo what you're saying is it's early and it's early, things, yes. things will change, but I do, I, again, I do think it's important to be aware of sort of macro forces and macro trends that, I think will push back against that change. And I'm not honestly sure that the big pharmaceutical companies want the system to change. Like, mm-hmm. I, I think that there is, I think the way that FDA is set up now um, benefits a lot of people and organizations with a lot of power and, you know, favors the development of blockbuster billion dollar drugs that have incremental effects. Right. There's no I, like I think that can't be argued. Like that is the case, right? right. No, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so will those will there be pushback against a paradigm shift towards maybe interventions that are more than incremental, right? That can actually have large effects on health span in in people. I, I certainly wouldn't imply like big pharma bad, right? I mean, <laughs> I think there are I think there are good people at these pharmaceutical companies who also want to want to change the world. Um, but I also believe that the the sort of uh, the, the the structures that are in place favor the sure, uh, sure, absolutely. development and uh, uh, moving forward with drugs that they believe they can get through clinical trials as currently structured. And those are the drugs that are that first of all, the endpoints are going to be disease focused, at least for now, and typically have small effect sizes, right? Right. Again, I think that is just the way that that FDA clinical trials are structured. You you very rarely do you see drugs uh, moved forward that could really change the game for, for a lot of these disorders. They're pretty small effects. But that's all you need. Really, what you need to get a drug approved is a tiny effect that reaches statistical significance or almost reaches statistical significance and where the side effect profile is safety, a side effect profile is acceptable by FDA standards, because it's really the safety that is the driver of approval of these drugs. And the benefit can be zero to small, and you can still get your drug approved if if it falls within the acceptable safety profile. And so that tends to favor incremental benefits. So, uh, so let me, let me ask yeah. you something though. So, 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 you know, the current state of longevity companies from, from, you know, the way I, and I think most people see it is, you know, you, you, you pick an indication, cancer, Alzheimer's, whatever it is, and then you develop your, you know, drug that targets one of the nine hallmarks and then you, you know, it goes through developments, <laughs> yeah. you know, right. So, so how do you feel about that, uh, that, that, that setup, you know, do you think it's, it's, um, you know, do you think like, you know, basically what I'm asking is, do you think the FDA needs to, you know, declare aging a disease in order for this field to really be 
you know, able to move forward properly or can we right. kind of, you know, uh, function in the system that we have here? Because it seems, I mean, it, it hasn't deterred companies from, you know, popping into existence. It hasn't deterred, you know, massive investments, right? So it's, it's uh, you know, but but it, it, it has deterred institutional investment investors, right? And I feel like the companies that, you know, end up raising, you know, hundreds, hundreds of millions of dollars are the ones that kind of, you know, uh, uh, you know, tweak their, uh, you know, language to, to, to try to fit under the kind of guidelines of, you know, going after these different diseases, right? And then, you know, having the off-label effect of right. aging after, right? right? So just what do you think about this whole system? You know, do so, you think it's, so, it's feasible to keep going? So a couple of things I would say. One is, I think for now, uh, unless you are one of these companies like Altos that gets a huge in, influx of investment, right, that gives you a long runway and allows you to do things by a different model, Calico is another example. Um, I think you sort of have to take that approach where from the very beginning, you are your mindset is to how do we get FDA approval? And that immediately constrains you to a certain sort of cookie cutter mentality. And I don't mean that in a, like, I'm not, I'm not trying to be critical, but it's true. You have to sort of it's follow true, the path that exists in order to get there because of the way that that the whole system is set up. So, so I think it's what you have to do. So I think that's what that's what companies do. Now, would so let's just say this is a this is I think an interesting this question of aging as a disease and and um I, I think there's a lot of misperceptions out there about this in the sense that a lot of people say, well if FDA would just recognize aging as a disease, all our problems would be taken care of. And right. I think that's I think that's just a fundamental lack of understanding about mm -hmm. how FDA operates. Um, okay, let's just say I'm I'm now the czar of FDA and I decide aging is a disease. Go do your clinical trials. What are you going to measure? You tell me. Right. What are you going to measure? No, I know that that's that's what I <laughs> right. All the time. <laughs> so yeah, what's the endpoint? Lifespan? Right. You're going to do a lifespan study in healthy people? Okay, come back to me 20 years from now when you, when you know the answer. So I don't think this helps much, if at all. I think what FDA, again, what FDA wants is they want quantitative endpoints that are going to tell us something about quality or quantity of life for your patient population. Absolutely. And they want to know that it's safe. Absolutely. And the magnitude of effect can be tiny as long as you fall within acceptable boundaries for safety. And that's a little bit nebulous because what's acceptable for safety is going to depend on the severity of the condition. Um, but you know, that, that will be defined as you go through the, the conversation process with FDA. So what can we measure that's quantitative that tells us something about quality or quantity of life within the framework of geroscience, right? Mm -hmm. So you have the choice. You can go to sick people who already have some age-related disease and either try to modify their disease course or like in the context of TAME, use multiple endpoints, composite endpoints right. to increase your statistical power and, and show that you can delay the, the onset of uh, one of multiple age-related diseases or functional declines. Right. So that's, right. one, that's one model. The other model is to start in a healthy or age-appropriate health status population and show that you can either delay the decline 
which is hard, but possible depending on what your endpoint is, or reverse the decline. And that's where I think the actual opportunities are. We now know that certain interventions can reverse functional declines that go along with aging. So you can mm -hmm. actually see things get better. Mm -hmm. There, I think you have the opportunity. This is the one place where I see potentially an opportunity for something that's more than incremental in the current FDA framework. Because if you can show that somebody who's had a significant decline in heart function or, you know, even something as, as you know, relatively benign in a sense as periodontal disease, if you can show that you've made it better, Mm -hmm. There you have an opportunity to get approval and something that actually moves the needle in terms of health outcomes. Um, so that's where I would think about. But whether we call aging a disease or not, or whether FDA does, I don't think matters from the clinical trial perspective. It may matter from a sort of cultural framework and how people think about geroscience. I don't think it has much of an impact on FDA and clinical trials. Right. Absolutely. Well, a few thoughts. The first thought is, you know, uh, you know, from the, from a from a PR standpoint, which is something that I, I kind of think about, uh, you know, aging as a disease has its issue, has its uh, issues, right? You know, it's a it's a you know, you're calling people over sixty five disease just yeah, for being it offends alive, a significant know, it's, it's, fraction it's, of people. It, yeah, it offends me. Right. It offends me. It's <laughs> a, you know, I I, I I plan to be healthy over sixty five, but I'm I'm going to be diseased then. You know, it's like. A, it's like, uh, you know, it, it, it is a little uh, rude and kind of, you know, I, I don't know. I don't like it. So, you know, I, they're, 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 they're kind of like the, the, the social problems of it. Right. But, uh, you know, I, I agree with you, like, you know, and, but like, but, but, you know, I, I'm sure you, you, you were at a lot of the same uh, conferences I was, you've heard, you know, half the talks are about, you know, these aging uh, clocks these days. Right. And, 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 you know, uh, and, and, and using the clocks as kind of a, 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 you know, the ultimate biomarker for, for aging trials. Right. And so what do you think about the clock situation? You know, uh, there's a, there's a ton of different, uh, you know, uh, organizations now working on it. So, so do you think that's kind of going to be a solution to, you know, aging as a disease in clinical trials? You know, do you think that'll ever be? I don't know. You know yeah, it's a good question. So, so I, here's I think where I, I mean, I, I would say I, I can't predict the future, obviously, um, and I don't, I'm, I'm not sure I know enough about the inner workings uh, at the regulatory bodies to, to really be able to make a, a, a strong prediction on this. So I think there's two things, right? One is the the aging clocks themselves, which I would just use the more generic term biomarker. Really, clock mm -hmm. is just you know, the latest iteration of, of right, biomarkers right, right. of aging, right? Um, it seems like the clock is like a, is, is like what near Barzillai is doing. And it's like a multitude of different, uh, you know, um, biomarkers, you know, biomarkers <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah Com right. Compiled into one. Yeah. It's just, so, it's just, yeah. So, so here's what I would say. I think that I, I'm very encouraged at the progression in development of clocks and development of biomarkers. I think the hype has gotten way ahead of the actual science. I, um, am frustrated by the epigenetic clock people who equate epigenetic biomarkers with aging biology as if they're, you know, you move one and you've affected everything about aging. But in general, I am, I am encouraged by the development of these biological aging clocks that look at, that take into account multiple aspects or multiple dimensions of aging and seem to be very predictive for uh, certainly chronological age, and in many cases for future health outcomes, at least in sort of retrospective sorts of uh, analyses. So so I'm very encouraged at how far we've come. Mm -hmm. And, and mm -hmm. I think we're getting close to really being able to have 
biomarkers of biological aging that are sensitive to intervention. There's a mm. couple of things that I would say about that though. One is all of these biological aging clocks are built on what we currently know about the biology of aging, which is incomplete. And so I don't, I, I want to be careful that we don't get comfortable with the idea that we figured it out. And, and the reason why I think that's important is let's say we get to a point where there's consensus in the field that this set of biomarkers is very predictive for intervention discovery, whether or not an intervention is going to impact health span and lifespan. As soon as we do that, and that's what everybody's using, we immediately lose the ability to find interventions that are outside of what we currently understand about aging biology. So I wanna be careful of that because I think there's more we don't understand than we do understand. And if we sure. ever wanna do better than caloric restriction, we really better start paying attention to what we don't understand. So that's sure. number one. Um, the other thing that I think is that I have less certainty about is what's the path to a regulatory body like FDA allowing these biological aging clocks or biomarkers of aging as a surrogate endpoint for a clinical trial. Mm -hmm. My perception is it's a long path based on you know historical surrogate endpoints. They, the, the people at FDA really have to feel confident that that surrogate endpoint is telling you something fundamental about the disease. Now they can still right. be wrong. You could make the case that the the, the amyloid beta yeah, surrogate yeah, endpoint for Alzheimer's yeah. disease that they got it wrong. But but even still, they have to be comfortable and confident yeah, that those yeah. those are reflecting the underlying uh, biology and are predictive of future health outcomes, quality, quantity of life. So I don't know what the path looks like there. And I think there are there are many factors that, that could come into play, you know, including some of the things that, that, that you and others are working on, which is changing the political landscape around the regulatory bodies, right? Mm -hmm. So so I think it's hard to predict how 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 that's going to evolve. I think it will happen eventually. Eventually we will have surrogate biomarkers that are useful for clinical trials. I'm just not, I think it's going to be, my guess is 10 years, um, mm -hmm. but that's a total guess. Yep. Yeah. Everything's a guess. It could, it could be tomorrow. It could be in a uh, you know, hundred years. Who knows? Right. Yeah. Well, God, let's hope not a hundred years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's right. I like many of our audience, you know, uh, you know, much of our audience, many of our listeners, uh, you know, have dogs, have doggos, and we love our dogs, and they're the best things in our lives. Some, you know, for for a lot of us, I know I love my dog more than I, I love most humans, to be honest. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> I think most people would agree. Um, we all want to see our dogs live longer, um, and uh, you know, I'm looking at your picture right now, and 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 it's it's you with a bunch of your uh, a bunch of dogs. Bunch of puppies. So yeah, yeah, very cute, very cute. So there's almost no feeling that compares with being mauled by about six puppies who all want to lick you. Sort of an amazing, I... uh, an amazing <laughs> experience. <laughs> <laughs> I I have two do uh, dogs, and when they were both puppies, it was it was quite an experience getting mauled by them. I can't imagine that times three. That would be that would be an overload. Um, but so 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 I have I, I mentioned earlier. I have anecdotal evidence. I have a friend who gave his uh, dog uh, at age starting at age ten rapamycin. Uh, I think on a schedule of one milligram a day every other day. And, um, or maybe, yeah, one milligram, I think was what it was. And, uh, the dog was active and healthy until I, I believe 14. Yeah. That's a pretty long life. You know, yeah. my, I've, I've had multiple dogs in my life and none of them have lived to 14. Um, you know, I, I know you said earlier, you have a lot of anecdotal evidence too. 
I'm sure you have some actual, you know, real world evidence too. So can you talk about the dog aging project? You know, why, do- why, you're, why you're targeting dogs? I mean, I think it, it, it's pretty self-explanatory, but, you know, maybe you could spell sure. it out. Sure. Uh, and, yeah, you know, yeah go ahead. Like, no, please, yeah. Yeah, please yeah, jump into it. Okay. So I think the first thing that I have to say, right, is I need to be very careful that I don't um, do anything that would cause people to believe that I'm recommending that they give rapamycin to their their dogs. I, I think, you know, it's important that we do this clinical trial because we don't know for sure that rapamycin is going to be beneficial for, for dogs or people. And the whole point of doing the clinical trial is to, to actually get the data. So I just want to put that out there that, yeah, I've had people email me and tell me about their experiences. And I know lots of people who are taking rapamycin off-label. I've done it myself. I personally believe that rapamycin can have beneficial effects for for many people and probably for for some dogs as well. But I also want to say that, you know, we don't fully know what the risk profile is and we don't know quantitatively that there is going to be significant benefits for lifespan and health span. So I think it's important just to recognize the difference between sort of anecdotal data. My friend gave rapamycin to their dog and their dog lived to be 14 years old between, you know, clinical trial data that's controlled and, and, you know, you can have some confidence in. So I just want to put that out there as sort of a general disclaimer. Disclaimer. Um, Yes, absolutely. So the dog aging project, I think, you know, we're about uh, five years into the, the large uh, NIH grant that has funded most of the dog aging project. This is really a project that started about 10 years ago, around 2013 is when I really first started thinking hard about, you know, this idea. And for me, it really, um, it really sprang from a series of conversations that I had with Daniel Promislow, who's the co-director of the Dog Aging Project. We were both uh, the co-directors of a summer course on aging biology at at Woods Hole for, for a couple of years. And it was conversations we had there that, that sort of solidified this in my mind. And, you know, it's funny because looking back on it, it seems so obvious, but I had never really thought about, you know, I'd been studying aging biology and interventions that could extend lifespan, you know, caloric restriction, 50% increase in lifespan, rapamycin, 25% increase in lifespan. I knew about all this stuff in laboratory animals, Mm -hmm. but I'd never made the connection that my dogs, and I've had dogs my entire life, you know, are aging seven to 10 times faster than we are biologically, right? right? Right. I mean, that's, that's clear. So the same interventions probably will work in dogs. We have to do the experiment to find out, but probably they'll work in dogs. And given that dogs age seven to 10 times faster than people do, we can know the answer in a reasonable time frame. So I, you know, I remember I was at Woods Hole and I'm and I just sit down on the back of the envelope, figure out. So how long would it take us to do a clinical trial in dogs to find out whether rapamycin works or not? And the answer was somewhere between three and five years. And I was like, wow, that's that's actually doable, right? That, that's yeah. something we can do in the timeframe of an NIH grant, right? So I started at that point really, you know, trying to <laughs> trying to convince other people that this was a good idea. And um, I think, you know, I think a lot of people got it uh, conceptually pretty quickly, mm-hmm. but thought it was crazy. Like there's just mm-hmm. no way you can actually do this. And so it mm-hmm. took five years uh, to actually be able to get a decent sized grant to be able to do this this clinical trial. And really we were only able to do that because we paired the, or I should say I was only able to do that because I know Daniel and Katie and the other people were really um, uh, 
really wanted to do this longitudinal study. The only way I was able to get the clinical trial funded was we packaged it in the context of this much larger longitudinal study of aging, which is important. Like, don't get me wrong. I am, I'm a big believer in the longitudinal study of aging in dogs. Ultimately that probably will lead to discoveries that transcend and are more important than the rapamycin clinical trial. But the only way I could get a grant to do the rapamycin clinical trial was to package it in the framework of this large longitudinal study of aging. So that's what we did. We have put together a longitudinal study of aging, which now has more than 41,000 dogs. Most of those dogs are not in a clinical trial. We are, we are following those dogs over time, mm-hmm. try to understand what are the most important genetic and environmental factors that influence healthy aging in companion dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, why dogs? I think we talked about how rapidly they age, so you can do it in a reasonable time frame. There are there are lots of reasons people love their dogs. About half the people in the United States, maybe more, consider their dog to be part of their family, right? Mm-hmm. So if we can, and and this gets to the sort of you know educating the public about geroscience. If we can convince a significant fraction of the general public that we can actually increase health span and lifespan in a family member and they can see it right by targeting the biology of aging that's a big inroad into educating the general public about geroscience i believe um so people consider their pets to be part of their family and dogs pretty much share the human environment you know with the exception of diet most aspects of the environment um our companion dogs share with us and so it's a way to understand how environmental factors influence aging biology that we can't get from mouse studies. Um, there are other reasons, but I think those are probably the, the the major ones why dogs make sense for this kind of a large longitudinal study uh, of aging. And um, so, like I said, we've got 41,000 dogs plus in the study now. We uh, are an open science project. We've made the first year's data set available so other data scientists can get access to it, analyze it. We're now publishing papers, um, found some interesting things. So we've published papers on meal frequency and uh, age-related health outcomes, uh, exercise and age-related health outcomes, um, cancer incidents and in, in genetic different genetic backgrounds. So I think it, we're just at the stage now, just in the last year, all those papers have come out where we're we're really starting to see the fruits of the of our labor, and and that's all from the cross-sectional data set where we only have one time point for each dog in that data set. Now every year we update the data on the dogs and that and that's where the longitudinal aspect comes in mm-hmm. we'll start mm-hmm. to be able to get beyond the simple correlative um cross-sectional inferences and and hopefully start to get to more you know things that are closer to 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 being able to 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 at least suggest causality um and then there's the clinical trial so the clinical trial mm-hmm. is sort of separate that's a a double blind placebo controlled clinical trial of rapamycin we call it mm-hmm. triad test of rapamycin in aging dogs. Primary endpoint is lifespan. So, you know, we talked earlier about how do you do a a geroscience clinical trial in people? You're not going to do a lifespan trial in healthy people. So, but, but yeah, because they're aging as rapidly as they are, especially larger dogs, um, we have enough power. So we have 580 dogs or we will in the trial. Um, uh, the dogs have to be at least seven years old and between 40 and 110 pounds in that demographic group. In three years, we have statistical power to detect a 9% change in lifespan. So we can actually do a lifespan clinical trial. That's the primary endpoint. But of course, 
we're as maybe more interested in health span. So we're looking broadly at, you know, as many health span metrics as we can measure right. in this population. And that includes cardiac function, neurological mm-hmm. function, activity, disease incidence, things like that. So, um, so that's the design of the trial. We are enrolling currently. We've got, I think, maybe almost a hundred dogs that have been screened. We have nine clinical sites. We're expanding that. Hopefully we'll be up above 20 clinical sites by the end of this calendar year. And then throughout next year, we will be finishing up the enrollment into the the trial. The dogs are block randomized at each site. The treatment period is one year, two year follow-up. So once once enrollment is complete, then it's a three-year time frame before we before we unblind and can answer mm-hmm. the question. So, you know, it's not as fast as I would like, but again, it's it's uh certainly something that 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 is that you wouldn't be able to do in humans. Um and I'm hopeful three and a half years from now, four years from now, we'll know the answer. Yeah, three and a half, four years now. I mean, I remember three and a half, four years ago, and that was not too <laughs> long ago. So uh, you know, I, I, it's not, that's not too long from now, especially, you know, I, and it, it's interesting, you, you talked about, you know, you're, you're looking at, uh, you know, health span indicators as well. Right. And I, I think that's, you know, that again, anecdotal evidence, everybody don't, you know, take this, you know, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not a doctor here. Uh, but, uh, you know, one of the, one of the, one of the key things that my friend, uh, you know, mentioned to me about the rapamycin and, and his dog was that she was, uh, you know, uh, you know, happy and healthy and, you know, going for walks every day up until her last few days, you know, and huh. it was really about, you know, uh, it was really a, 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 a it, it was like a, a it, it, her, her, what is it? Com- compression of morbidity, right? It, her, the period of time she lived in bad health was really minimized and she was, she lived a you know longer life than most dogs, but also a, a healthier life. I mean, 15 yeah. years in good health running around is, and, you know, not for nothing, he has another dog who's now 12 and still doing the same thing and has been on rapamycin for longer. So uh, and, and then he, now he's got a third dog who is a, who he started giving a rapamycin, a rapamycin to as a four year old. So, you know, I think he's just uh, using his dogs as test subjects at this point. But, uh, you know, I'll, I'll let you know, Matt. I'll, yeah, I'll I, I can't condone that kind of uh, that kind of behavior. That's all, that's all <laughs> I can say. But no, I, mean, no, I, do I, think, I, I do think it'll be interesting. Right. I mean, I think we, we should be able to tell if there is a compression. Of, of morbidity in the clinical trial population. Sure. Um, the one thing I can say is, so we've done two safety trials. One was a 10-week treatment. One was a six-month treatment. And in both of those trials, the owners self-reported increased activity in the, the dogs that got rapamycin and they were blinded. So, you know, again, they're small studies, short term, but the fact that in both of them, that was self-reported by the owners mm-hmm. who didn't know which, mm-hmm. you know, whether their dog was getting rapamycin or placebo, you know, makes me believe that there probably is something there, at least over the short term, in terms of uh, a perceived activity of of your dog. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. Well, you know, I uh, I have two doggos at home, and they're they're I think both six. So hopefully, in three to four years, we'll know. So we, you know, if, if it's the right answer, we can start getting my doggos on on their rapamycin. Yeah. Um, but uh, but but uh, awesome, good stuff. So so I, I'm just looking now. We have five minutes left here. Uh, Matt, so I just want to ask you, uh, you know, uh, a question that I ask everybody uh, to kind of end off the po- uh, the podcast. Um, you know, so I and I feel like most people in this field are optimists, right? I feel like we, you know, uh, get into this field because we see the good in humanity. Uh, you know, why do you think people? Why do you think our audience should be optimistic about the future? 
you know, you can talk about, you know, longevity as being a reason. You can talk about other fields, you know, but what's your outlook on humanity, you know, 10, 20, 30 years down the road? Yeah. So, I, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I'm, I definitely would put myself in the, in the optimist, uh, in general category. Um, so why should we be optimistic about the future? Well, I mean, I think one way to think about it is, you know, what's the alternative? <laughs> if you're not optimistic, you can be miserable, but you know, what, <laughs> why would you want to do that? I think it's certainly easy to look around the world and focus on all of the things that aren't working the way that we want them to. Right. I, I guess what I would say is, you know, certainly within this field, there's no question that we should be optimistic. Like, like we've talked about, we, are, I feel like we are at sort of a hockey stick moment where the trajectory of the pace of discovery in this field is going to increase dramatically. And we have an opportunity to really have large impacts on uh, well-being for, for lots and lots of people. Um, so I'm optimistic about the field for sure. And when you put it in the broader picture, I think, you know, the, the pace of technology is increasing. And um, I think the world is going to change unquestionably in ways that we can't predict. Um, but I would also say that if you look back through human history, in general, the trajectory has been towards better quality of life for more people. And I am um, optimistic that that trend will continue and that that you know the human race will be able to avoid the 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 pitfalls that might prevent us from from achieving that and i think you know I, I, in many ways i look back and i wish i was coming into this field now as a 25 year old right because i think that the future there's so many cool things that are going to happen in the future and i hope that i will benefit from the discoveries and live to be you know 120 mm -hmm. 130 maybe even more Mm -hmm. Um, but I would love to be coming into the field now because I think that, you know, there's, there's a lot of really exciting stuff that's going to happen both in our science and in the, the sort of evolution of the, the human race over the next, uh, hundred years as we, you know, continue to, to accelerate the pace of discovery. So I, I'm, I'm, uh, I guess, I guess it just comes down to curiosity, right? If you're a curious person and you want to see what's going to happen, then, um, then I think it's a good time to be alive. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, that's one of the main reasons I want to, you know, live long, as long as possible is, you know, I want to see, I want to see how humanity looks, you know, as for as you know, a hundred years from now, right. You know, yeah. longer, right. I want to see what, uh, you know, others couldn't in the, in the, in the past and, you know, see how humanity progresses on a larger scale. And I think that's very, very, very interesting to me. I, you know, I, I, people are interesting. It's worth it. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think the other thing that I would say is if, you know, and I, I believe this and this might be naive, but, but I I've always believed, I think most people at heart want to help other people. I think human absolutely. beings are pack animals and we, we gain happiness from helping other people. And I know it's, it's hard to look around the world sometimes and see that, <laughs> but I think that's true of most people. And I fundamentally, I think that's why I'm optimistic about the future of the human race, because I, I believe that at heart, most of us are the same. We generally want the same things and we want to help other people. We all breathe the same air. We all cherish our children's future and we are all mortal. You know who said that? Uh, I'm, what's that? That was JFK. I, I was trying. Uh, I was trying to give it away. In the, yeah, yeah, in the yeah, yeah, yeah. I can. I can hear it now. I can hear it. <laughs> well, on that note, Matt, I, I agree with you on everything you said. 
you know, I, I just want to, you know, uh, I see we're out of time here. So thank you so much for joining. This was, you know, one heck of a conversation. Uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to following up with you in the future. Uh, you know, hopefully over time we can, uh, you know, do check-ins and, uh, you know, I think we can get updates on all the different, uh, you know, the dog aging project and, op, you know, your, your work at Optispan uh, and everything else, uh, you know, uh, but I'm really glad you joined us. And, uh, you know, I'm glad that we have people like you in the longevity industry who are so smart and passionate. Uh, so, so thank you, Matt. Uh, if you, if you have anything else you want to say to our audience, uh, you know, please, please do now. Uh, and, and then we'll, we can, uh, we'll wrap it up. Yeah, no, no, I just want to say thank you for having me. It's, it's been a pleasure and, uh, um, absolutely looking forward to, uh, to what's going to, what, what's coming down, coming down the road. It's going to be fun. Me too. Me too. All right. Well, thank you again to Dr. Kaberline for coming on to our podcast and thank you to all of you, our listeners for tuning in. If you have anyone you would like to see make an appearance on our podcast, you can send your suggestions to us at info at a4li.org. We will be back in about two weeks with our next podcast installation. As always, let's live long and prosper.